Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the New Testament, the letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The word of the Lord, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you are called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it is has for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarrelling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptised none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptised in my name. I did also baptise the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God, through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men.
For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And here begins our text, verses 1 to 5 of chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not proclaim to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The sermon I'm allowed to read this morning is from the hand of Reverend G. Whiskey. And in response to the sermon, we will sing from hymn 52, verses 1, 4 and 5. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, In order to understand and appreciate the message of our text, it is important to know what moved Paul to write these words. To do that, we must gain some understanding of the context in which our text appears. So for a brief moment, let us step back and have a closer look at 1 Corinthians 1. Corinth was a large and important harbour city situated in the southern part of Greece. It was also the resident city of the Roman governor and housed a cosmopolitan population, making it a melting pot of all kinds of people. It was during this time that the expression to live like a Corinthian became a proverb which stood for immorality and loose living. Paul had arrived in Corinth on his second missionary journey and introduced the gospel of Jesus Christ to its inhabitants. The Lord had richly blessed his preaching. The result of his work during his 18-month stay was the establishment of a sizable church, consisting for the greater part of Gentile Christians. However, when Paul was in Ephesus on his third missionary journey, some people from Corinth arrived one day and told him that there were troubles in their church. Contentions and factions threatened to destroy the unity of the faith. Within the congregation, there were brothers and sisters who aligned themselves with and formed factions named after various ministers, you could say. The one group swore by Paul, another by Apollos, who had also worked in Corinth. Still another one venerated Cephas or Peter. 
while the fourth group didn't really go for any of these but claimed their allegiance to Christ alone. This news really upset the Apostle Paul for he realised the danger that factionalism poses for the church. And that's why he grabs a pen and starts writing this letter. But notice how he does that, congregation. He doesn't immediately plunge into the differences represented by the faction groups, but first of all reminds these Christians of their unity in Christ. He even starts by expressing his thanks to the Lord, who in his grace had also established a church in Corinth, to which his readers may now belong. In other words, Paul, starts, Paul takes his starting point in God and in his Christ, who, through the gospel, had brought these former Jews and heathens to the knowledge of salvation. That's what he appeals to when he sets out to deal with the problems of the congregation. For problems there were. No, the unity of faith had not yet disappeared. The church was still one. People had not yet left the congregation. But that could easily happen. For what was the case? The gospel of Christ was no longer their central focus. The true preaching of the word was in grave danger. Instead, the congregation paid more attention to the person and style of the preacher than to the content of the sermon. They had become captivated more by the strong personalities and what they liked to hear than by the truth of the gospel. Some said, give me Paul. After all, did he not bring us the gospel in the first place? He's our man. Maybe they liked his emphasis on their freedom in Christ. You could perhaps call them traditionalists, although some liberal tendencies may also have been present. Others went for Apollos, the man with the gilded tongue. His academic background was also impressive and he has such a likeable, charismatic personality. He may have really appealed to the younger generation and the intellectuals. And then you had those who aligned themselves with Cephas or Peter. He is a man who dots the I's and crosses the T's. He's not afraid to offer his opinion and he, at least, gives the law of Moses its proper emphasis. The Jewish Christians may have been the ones who preferred him. And then you had the fourth group, the Christ faction. It sure sounds very pious compared to the other three groups, but they could very well have been independents, the ones who didn't really care for the specific officers of the church, particularly of the office of preacher. They had a disdain for Christ's ambassadors. Who needs ministers anyway? Christ is all I need. But Paul realises the unmistakable danger of this kind of talk. He understands what is really at stake. The unity of the church. The importance of the gospel. When persons become more important in the church than the truth of God, when personality cults supplant Jesus Christ, when your own preferences mean more to you than the gospel then the wisdom of the world has infiltrated the church and man's ideas and desires carry the day, no matter how religiously you dish them up or how piously you adorn them. And that is why Paul says, 
Shame on you, brothers. Is that what the gospel is about? Is that what you look for in ministers of the word? They are not important, but their preaching is. They are all servants of Christ. Yes, they have their strong and their weak points, their hobby horses, perhaps, and their personal opinions. Their many or not so many talents, their mannerisms and character traits. Oh, you are entitled to your preferences. The one may be easier to follow than the other, but that's not what counts. It's the message they proclaim, the content of what they preach. That's what builds up the church. That's what preserves the unity of faith. And so the Apostle sets out to describe what must have been all the attention in the church of Jesus Christ. The foolishness of God instead of the wisdom of man. The true preaching of the gospel instead of eloquence, logic or the beautifully embellished personal ideas of the preacher. For all those things belong to the wisdom of man that empties the preaching of its real power. For the church has no future unless the gospel is preached. The church will become unfruitful when Christ does not stand in the centre. The church will disintegrate when the wisdom of man replaces the truth of God. For in the church there is no room for boasting except in the Lord. No place for personality contests except Jesus Christ. No concern for private opinions but for the preaching of the gospel. And that's what Paul works out in our text, which I may proclaim to you under this heading, Paul's stress on the importance of the preaching of the true gospel. And we'll see firstly its contents, secondly its results, and thirdly its aim. 1 Corinthians was written some two or three years after Paul first set foot in the city of Corinth. That is the reason Paul's reminder as to what took place when he worked in their midst could be known by almost everybody. Don't you remember, brothers, how I came to you? asked Paul. Have you forgotten how I proclaimed the gospel to you? How did I preach? What did I stress? What was I concerned about? And then the Apostle goes into some detail about the testimony of God. Some translations have the mystery of God. No, this has nothing to do with secrecy and suspense. The mystery of God is the mystery of the Gospel. It had been hidden for ages and generations, says Colossians 1 verse 26. But it has now been revealed to God's saints, that is, to God's true children, his believers, to those he has called into his fellowship. It is the mystery of God's love and grace, the mystery of how God can be both righteous and merciful, the mystery that in God's own Son, sin has been defeated and righteousness has appeared to all who believe. Well, asked Paul, how did I proclaim this mystery to you? And then he proceeds to give the answer himself. I did not come proclaiming the mystery, this gospel of God's forgiving grace with excellence of speech or of wisdom, not with oratorical skills. I did not seek my strength in the eloquence of language, in literary, literary art, in what may impress people who love language 
for language's sake. We must not forget, beloved, that this form of speaking was highly prized in ancient Greece. Philosophers and travelling teachers were in high demand. They kept people spellbound with their art of reasoning. Just think of Athens, where Paul had just been prior to coming to Corinth. Acts 16 tells us that the people there preferred nothing better than to tell or to hear something new, something remarkable. The Greeks loved oratory. Not what was said, but how it was said, and who said it. That's what counted for them. But that was not my approach, says Paul. That's not why I came to you as an orator, a skillful public speaker, to gather a personal following or to be celebrated as a great man. Neither did I come proclaiming the mystery of God in words of wisdom. From the context, it is clear that Paul speaks here of human wisdom, the wisdom of this world, the wisdom which does not take God into account. You know what it's like, don't you, brothers and sisters? For that kind of wisdom has not really changed over the centuries. It is the wisdom which sells a message by means of enticing and flattering words. Words used to bring a point across, not on the merits of its truth, but not on its appeal to man's desires. It seeks to point a contact, sorry, it seeks a point of contact with what people want. It tells men what they want to hear. Not only do many 21st century politicians use this kind of wisdom, but in Corinth too, they were under its spell, even in the church. The wisdom which accommodates man's sinful nature, which aligns itself with our own wishes, even when those wishes are of a religious nature, by glorifying in man, for instance, by drawing attention to pet ideas, by enforcing private opinions, by stressing peripheral matters at the cost of the overall truth. No, this does not necessarily mean that there is no room for Jesus or for the Bible. On the contrary, but there is no interest in or attention for the Christ of Scriptures. For the whole entire Word of God from Genesis to Revelation... You find that kind of wisdom not only in the factionalism prevalent in the church at Corinth, where charisma and style, personal satisfaction and personal goals were pushed at the cost of the unity of the church. You also see it today in many so-called denominations. Jesus there, hailed as a great teacher or as a shining example. But the real gospel is no longer heard. That lies buried beneath layers of human wisdom. Worse yet, this kind of teaching empties the cross of Christ of its real and authentic power. Repentance and faith hardly rate a mention. And obedience to God's commands rapidly disappears. Instead, a humanistic gospel is proclaimed. A wisdom according to man where love means to be nice, cosy and warm. Where love means to make room for all kinds of lifestyles and where God becomes a Santa Claus who has but one aim, to make people feel happy in whatever way they choose 
as long as they respect the rights of others. But that is not gospel preaching. That does not reflect the mystery or the testimony of God. To live with a closed Bible or to open it only when it suits your specific purposes, no matter how they may be dressed up. That's what was happening in the church at Corinth. There the unity of faith, their oneness in Christ, was jeopardised by their personal pursuits and preferences. In Corinth, they were impressed with the wisdom of the world, the wisdom which relies more on people than on the message they proclaim. For that reason, Paul exclaims, Brothers and sisters, the contents of true preaching, the secret which holds the church together, the unity in which believers must find each other, can be found in no other thing than Jesus Christ and him crucified. Oh, there are people, sometimes also in the church, who say, great, this is what we like to hear. Nothing too specific, no stress on all that is in the Bible, no talk of all kinds of doctrines and those man-made confessions to which we must adhere, but Jesus and him crucified. That alone is sufficient. That's what binds all Christians together. But that is not what Paul means, brothers and sisters. What does he mean? Why does Paul define true preaching as proclaiming Jesus Christ and him crucified? Not to give an exhaustive description of the gospel, not to lend weight to the idea as if Christ's birth and resurrection, God's commandments and holy living are of no importance. Just read Paul's other letters. Hear him speak about the resurrection, for instance, in chapter 15 of this letter, even to such an extent that he says, if Christ were not raised, your faith is in vain. No, Paul zeroes in on the kernel of true preaching, on what must be the heart and the centre of every sermon, Jesus Christ and him crucified. For this is a great stumbling block to natural man, even the very religious natural man, the crucified Christ. For that fact, more than any other, reminds us of what was necessary to be saved, the death of God's own Son. It stressed how depraved and sinful we are, that only God could rescue us. It emphasises the greatness of God's love for sinners, that he went all the way in order to save the church, even when that way led to curse and condemnation, to shame and death for his own beloved son. No, the Corinthian church had not yet rejected the truth, but it is, nevertheless, the ultimate result when people are driven to seek personal preferences and when they are pursued with a zeal that will stop at nothing. Then the gospel truth is not only in danger but it is emptied of power. And that's why Paul reminds his readers of his preaching among them. I determined, or I decided, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. From the very start of his gospel preaching, this was a central theme from which he drew and sketched all other lines. No, Paul did not push himself to the fore. He wasn't out to gain a personal following, but he came in the name of his God and with the wisdom from above. He knew that this would never be appreciated by natural man, 
But that didn't deter him either. His mandate was to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. His person and his work, Jesus, that is, Saviour. Christ, that is, the God-appointed mediator. And the cross which stands for man's reconciliation by grace alone. But that's not all that his preaching implies. For this Jesus, this Christ, this cross demands unconditional faith. And this faith contains very practical consequences. Oh, people don't mind religion. Many don't even mind Jesus Christ, as long as his cross is not mentioned. For it does not only proclaim that our sins had to be atoned for, but also that, as believers in the cross, they must now crucify their old nature, fight against their sinful pride, to have the same mind as Christ, that is, not being out for personal gain and acclamation, but to live for your God and your brothers and sisters just as Christ did. And that was and still is man's biggest problem in Corinth and today. To believe the gospel of the crucified Christ without any qualifications and to translate that belief into obedient living. When, by the grace of God, that happens, the church is and remains safe. Then the brotherhood blossoms. Then private goals and personal preferences take second place to the unity of the church for which Christ shed his blood. Then we view our life as we must view it, living together as brothers and sisters whom we did not choose and pick, but who were given to us by God himself, because Christ also died for them. What does that mean, brothers and sisters, you ask? First of all, think little of yourself. Only grace can truly bring down man, man down to his proper size. Don't assert yourself. Don't throw your weight around the church of Christ. But humble yourself. Thankful that God has also made you a member of his family together with your children. And demonstrate that humility in your association with your brothers and sisters. How? Well, the Bible gives you many examples. You go the extra mile, for instance. You know what it means to be least. You don't retaliate. You don't repay evil for evil. You speak the truth in love, even when the truth compels you to disagree. You stay as far away as possible from the attitudes as if the goal ever sanctifies the means in the church of Christ. You take God's commandment seriously. Above all, his commandment to cling to the whole gospel and to that gospel alone as the church may confess it in her creeds. You don't add to it when it suits you and neither do you take away from it when it comes in handy, no matter how praiseworthy your motives may be. For the contents of the gospel is and remains Jesus Christ and him crucified. By his death, he made you God's people. You are not your own, says Paul in chapter 6. You have been bought with a price. And this promise of God applies to all of you. Believe this gospel and see to it that you never become the cause for a brother or sister turning their back upon the Christ 
or by applying worldly wisdom and human tactics which are out of bounds in the church of Jesus Christ. In the second place, we will see the results of preaching the true gospel. First of all, what it means with regard to the preacher. For Paul informs the Corinthian church about some other particulars relevant to when he first came to preach the gospel amongst them. Says Paul, I came to you in weakness, in much fear and trembling. No, this does not mean that Paul was afraid of men. The various letters he wrote, as well as the book of Acts, clearly demonstrates that he was no coward. He went where others might have stayed away from. And who suffered at the hands of God's enemies as Paul did? But Paul speaks here about his fear and trembling in and for his office, his task to which Christ had called him. He was aware of his tremendous responsibilities. He knew that everything hinged on how he would preach the gospel. He realised the danger which ministers encounter, trying to be popular with everyone, yet at the cost of the truth, or getting quick and visible results, but at the expense of the veracity of the gospel. Which minister cannot here identify with Paul? Which servant of the Lord does not know of climbing the pulpit with trembling knees and the heartful prayer, Strengthen me, Lord, I cannot do it myself. May your Holy Spirit empower me. Who is able to meet the high demands of the ministry? Who does not shrink back from the pitfalls a minister can meet in exercising his office? From the awesome responsibility inherent in preaching? No wonder Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, Who is competent for such a heavy task which God has entrusted to weak vessels, to sinful people, not at all immune to the common temptations of men, to popularity and to the rallying support of prominent names. Yet the God who calls is also the God who enables. The God who promises also makes his promises come true. Paul really experiences that, for he continues, My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. Paul was protected from the danger to speak what people like to hear, to use his office for the advantage of his own honour or ideas. He did not use underhand tactics, he says in 2 Corinthians 4. He did not tamper with the full gospel for personal acclaim, for he preached Jesus Christ and him crucified, no more and no less. And the results were there for all to see. For his preaching was done in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, says our text. Look at the results of his preaching. Who had changed these Corinthian Christians from their vile and sinful life to become children of God? Who has brought about such a change in their own depraved nature? That was the work of the Spirit of Christ. He created life where death once reigned. Obedience, where rebellion was cherished. Holiness, where sin held sway. The proof is there, internally and externally. The true preaching of the gospel had achieved 
what nothing else can. In the early church, the changes wrought by the gospel were truly shattering. And before the Bible was complete, the Lord confirmed this preaching with many miraculous powers. Indeed, people had absolutely no excuse when they denied things so clearly achieved by the preaching of the word of God in lives of previously vile sinners. And though these special powers of signs and miracles may now no longer be claimed, it takes nothing away from the truth that today too, the results of true gospel preaching are plainly miraculous. It changes the hardest hearts. It creates love where previously there was hate. It makes people ask for God's commandments instead of living as they see fit. For it is the word of God, that powerful word unto salvation, that self-same word which once called this creation into existence and now recreates sinful men and women, making them grow in obedience to God. True, the wisdom of man also boasts of significant achievements. Also, his religious wisdom. Jehovah's Witnesses can boast of obedience to orders. Various sects can claim a commitment which does not even stop at death. Unfaithful churches and many named Christians can sometimes point to a fairly high code of ethical living. But none of the above can change a person from the inside out, creating a love in man's heart for God and for his brothers and sisters. A love not based on charisma or sympathy, on like-mindedness, but rooted in Jesus and his blood, by which he purchased his church and brought all kinds of different people together into one family, the family of God, the communion of saints. The communion where my interests don't come first, but the interests of God and his church. Where I don't pursue my personal fancies, but aim with all my brothers and sisters to know what is the depth and the breadth and the height of God's love for sinners. Where the well-being of all God's children lies very close to my heart because Christ has drawn me into his temple, the dwelling place of the Spirit, to glorify and praise my Saviour, not only in private domain of the inner room, first of all, together within the walls of Jerusalem. By living wherever I go, from the grace of my God in full accordance with his gospel, in love and obedience for such salvation. And that's what the wisdom of this world can never achieve. That's what mere logic or oratory or even religious zeal can never produce. People may run away with it and be impressed by its appeal for a while, but it cannot and does not satisfy in the long run. It falls so terribly short of meeting our deepest needs. Peace with God, joy in the Spirit, rest in Jesus Christ, love for all God's children, true unity with all my brothers and sisters. These things can only be the result of the true gospel, the faithful preaching of the word, which still today is being demonstrated by the Spirit and by power. The existence of the church here is only one proof of that. And that brings us to our final point, the aim of preaching the gospel alone. 
Paul writes that your faith should not be in wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Enough has been said about man's wisdom. If the church must rest in that, unity would disappear. Then party politics and factionalism will take over. Personal favourites would push to the detriment of the well-being of the church. But that is never the purpose of preaching the gospel. The crucified Christ has died for all whom God has given him, for the whole family of our Heavenly Father, for all the brothers and sisters whom the Lord has placed beside us, unless they clearly reveal that they don't want to serve God, that they refuse to break with clearly defined sins. Then they must be expelled from the church, says the Bible. For the congregation of Christ is a congregation of believers. No, says Paul, your faith must rest in the power of God. Do you wonder why Paul uses that expression? Why didn't he just say it must rest in the gospel? For that is undoubtedly meant. In chapter 1 verse 18, this power of God is called the word of the cross. And from other places in scripture, we know that this means the whole of scripture, the complete word of God. Just think of Romans 1, where the word is called the power of God. It is not too hard to discover why Paul uses this expression. For this puts the Corinthian problem in their exact and proper perspective. What was the biggest problem in this congregation? No, it was not that people had no time for the word of God. There was no problem with the truth of the Bible. After all, Peter and Apollos brought the same message as Paul. They too were servants of the same God, says chapter 3. But in Corinth, they were in grave danger of no longer being satisfied with the Bible alone. In Corinth, they had become influenced by worldly means and human considerations, by personalities. Their interests were focused on what they wanted to hear instead of what they needed to hear. The one group claimed that the others were missing out and that the church would not flourish until all preachers were forced into the mould of Paul or of an Apollos or of a Peter, depending on what faction they belonged to. But Paul calls this the wisdom of man. Oh, it's very appealing, and it often seems to border on the truth. Is the delivery of the sermon not important? Is the gift of speaking well to be neglected? Do we not need resolute leaders who are not afraid to speak their mind? Is the academic background and the proficiency in analysing problems not very important in a servant of the word? Does it leave us indifferent to how a minister thinks about this or that? Of course not. All these things are important, but they are not decisive. They are not to be pursued at all costs. What is and remains fundamental is the proclamation of the word, the power and the wisdom of God, the complete message of salvation centred in the cross of Christ. That is and must remain the touchstone, that which carries the greatest weight. For it is that message upon which our faith must be grounded. It's in that message where we find our unity. That's what keeps the church together. That's what our salvation rests upon. 
not on strong or charismatic personalities, not on logical deductions of man, not on the powers of reason or the art to say it beautifully, not on clever arguments. Someone once said, he who depends on a clever argument is at the mercy of a more clever argument. But, brothers and sisters, with regards to your salvation, with regards to mercy of anyone or anything, accept the Lord and his word. On Christ and him crucified, on the preaching of the cross, on the foolishness of God, which is power unto salvation for everyone who believes. Blessed is the church where people are taught to believe the scriptures, the whole counsel of God. Blessed is every congregation whose pulpit feeds its hearers on Christ alone. Blessed are those believers when they place their faith on what the church confesses to be the truth of Christ. When their lives are anchored in the power of God. Such a church and such a faith can weather all storms. Such a church and such a faith is indestructible. For Christ, the power of God, he will keep them together. Christ, the wisdom of God, he will guide them in truth. May the gospel, may this power of God, brothers and sisters, be and remain your only hope. For it is not people who keep the church together, but Christ. It's not by man's words that you are saved, but God's. Hold fast then to the Christ and his word. Love and defend him and the confessions of the church. And above all, cherish the true preaching of the word. Demand that only Jesus Christ and him crucified be preached in your midst. Then all will be well, and the unity of God's people will be seen and enjoyed. For as long as our faith rests on this foundation, the power of God will see to it that we remain one in Christ, and that our salvation will surely dawn when we at long last arrive home with God and his Christ, with all our brothers and sisters, boasting in his grace, glorifying in his protection, a grace and a protection which is founded in Jesus Christ and him crucified, in the gospel of salvation, which is the only foundation of the earth, of the church, and the only source and lasting assurance of the true unity of all believers. Amen. <laughs>